This past Monday afternoon, a longtime Anglican uh, priest uh, at Church of the Redeemer, located just about a, a mile and a half from here, Father Thomas McKenzie, started a well-earned sabbatical. It was the first day of his sabbatical, and his first task was to drive his 22-year-old daughter, Ella, back to college uh, in uh, New Mexico. She went to St. John's College. Father McKenzie had lots of plans for a sabbatical. He and his wife were going to go to Europe and travel. They were going to hike the Camino uh, path in Spain. But when he and Ella left Nashville in their car, just a little bit west of here on I-40, unfortunately, they ran into a tractor trailer, and they lost, both of them lost their lives. I did not know Father McKenzie personally. I, I did know of him. We started serving our churches at about the same time, 14 years ago. But I certainly have known that he's impacted the lives of many in our community and beyond. He was a humble leader. He was courageous. He was personable. He was compassionate, devoted to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was unafraid to speak truth to power, and he was already working to help the Afghan refugees. Last week, last Sunday, a week ago today, McKenzie preached what would be his last sermon. He didn't know that at the time, but the title was Surrender. And in the sermon, he talked about humility. He said, humility is not a single action. Humility isn't a single decision. It's not a single prayer or a single sacrament. Humility is thousands upon thousands of little moments in which we surrender to the God that we often do not understand. I'm praying for his family, his wife and other daughter. I'm praying for the Church of the Redeemer, their church family. But the reality of the matter is none of us know how long we're going to get to live here on this life, on this earth. The book of James, it says, what is your life? The length of your life is as uncertain as the morning mist. Now you see it, but soon it is gone. The only question that we must answer and wrestle with is how are we going to live the days and the years that we have left? Something else happened this week. On Thursday in Kabul, suicide bombers struck at the airport, killing 12 of our Marines one U.S. Army sergeant who was actually from East Tennessee, a guy named Ryan Naus, and over 100 Afghan people who were there trying to get out of the country. Our troops were there helping with the evacuation effort, trying to bring people home, and now they've lost their lives. And so we should also pray for the families of these troops, these Marines and Army generals, and also the families of the 100-plus Afghans who lost their life on Thursday. Again, you don't know how long you're going to be here. What is your life? The length of your life is as uncertain as the morning mist. Now you see it, but soon it is gone. This fall, we're wrestling with uh, the questions of Jesus. We've started this new series called Tough Questions of Jesus. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus asks over 300 in, uh, questions, 307 roughly, if you count them up. And I'm recommending a book by Martin Copenhaver that's titled Jesus is the Question. If you want to dive deeper into this topic and look at a broad array of these questions. But if you read the Gospels, what you find is that asking profound questions was part of Jesus's teaching style. It's part of what he did. And, and, and he did this, I believe, because it causes us to reflect 
and dive deeper. Uh, asking questions helps us grow in our faith, grow in our spiritual lives, helps us learn more about a, a subject or a topic that we may not understand. And so in 16 years of ordained ministry in preaching and teaching and counseling, I've discovered that asking hard questions is very important. And you have to do that on a regular basis. And Jesus did that on a regular basis. So last week we looked at Peter's question, or Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say that I am? And we talked about how as Christians we all have to wrestle with this question on our own. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father in heaven. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, this morning we move further ahead in Matthew 16, and we find another question of Jesus where he says, what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life, or in other translations, their soul? And what can they give in return for their life? Now, it's important to take a step back and understand the context of this question. After Peter's declaration about Jesus and who he is, Jesus starts talking about his upcoming death and resurrection. He tells his disciples that he will have to undergo great suffering at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, that he will be killed and that he will rise on the third day. Well, Peter doesn't like this. It makes him uncomfortable. And so he says, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But Matthew tells us that Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus knew what was coming and he wasn't afraid. He knew that it was both inevitable and necessary. And that's why he begins today's passage on discipleship by saying, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world? but forfeit their soul, their life. You know, part of being a Christian means believing that there is more to life than this earthly existence. We all have physical bodies. Uh, some of us are better at taking care of our physical bodies than others. Some of us exercise regularly. Some of us eat healthy. Others, others of us do not. But we also have a soul. And, and when we die to this life, I believe that our soul lives on. Our soul is who we really are. And Jesus was always reminding his disciples of how important it is to tend to our soul. Our physical bodies have limitations. We get cancer, we get dementia, we get Alzheimer's, we get COVID, many other things. But our soul lives on. And Jesus wants us to not be so focused on our physical bodies and our earthly life that we neglect our soul. Now in their book called The Spirit Level, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett say this, it is a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of human and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendships, and driven to consume with little or no community life. In other words, many people in our culture have everything to live with 
but they still long for something to live for. Jonathan Sachs puts it this way, a consumer society encourages us to spend money we don't have on products we don't need for a happiness that won't last. Living in a consumer society inflames our discontent. It feeds our sense of inadequacy. It encourages us to make constant comparisons with other people. And so isn't it ironic, isn't it ironic that broadly speaking, the most affluent people in our world are the ones who are on anxiety and depression medicine, and some of the poorest people in our world are full of joy and gratitude for what little they have. And I've seen it. I've seen it in Guatemala. I've seen it in other places. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and again, all was vanity and chasing after the wind. We fool ourselves into thinking that material possessions will satisfy our deepest spiritual desires in life. They don't, or they do for a little while, and then it wears off. So back to Jesus' question this morning. What will it profit them to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Look at Nashville. This city that we love and in which we live, look at the number of people that are, that are coming here, the companies that are moving here from California and Boston and New York. Uh, look at the growth. We didn't ask for it. We didn't necessarily want all these people here. But if you're in church this morning and you just moved here, we're glad you're here. But we live in a town that is red hot. It's growing leaps and bounds. But we get so caught up sometimes with keeping up with everybody else that we lose our core values and our sense of who we are. And it can happen before we know it. Now, there are a few ways in life that I see that we can sell our soul. And sometimes we don't even recognize it until it's too late. But let me name a few this morning. The first one is working too much. There's an interesting debate going on in our culture right now that's being forced by the pandemic, and it's whether or not workers can be just as effective working remotely as being in the office. And so this is being hotly debated, but it really doesn't matter if you work in the office or you work at home or you do a hybrid, the temptation to overwork at the expense of your family is always there. And very few people lie on their deathbeds at the end of life wishing they had worked more. Those aren't the regrets that most people have. We need to work hard and then we need to stop. Have boundaries. You can't be available all the time. You know, workaholism is glorified in, in America for some reason, but it's not really healthy. The second area that I think we can sell our soul on is when it comes to money. Money's the number one false god in our culture. Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money in and of itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. But we have to have money to survive. We have to have money to live in Nashville. We have to have money to pay the mortgage and the bills. Uh, uh, yes, all that's true. But when money becomes our sole focus and our sole motivator in life. It leads to levels of shallowness and superficiality that we may not even recognize. Money makes a great servant, but it makes a terrible master. Money tears apart marriages and families and friendships and siblings. 
That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot serve both God and wealth. Now, does that mean that we can't have money and save money and invest money? No. But we have to be generous along the way with what we have to help others. This week, we raised about $20,000 in the flood fund to help the people of Waverly who are struggling after last weekend. We can't keep everything that we have to ourselves. The third area where I see we can often sell our soul is when it comes to uh, infidelity in marriage. This is certainly not a new challenge, but sometimes people make decisions in the heat of the moment that can wreck an entire life of hard work and trust. Getting married, starting a family, raising a family, all of that is hard work. Many of you know that. It's not always easy or fun. It requires sacrifice and commitment. But making a decision to cheat on your spouse can bring more pain and hurt to your family than almost anything else. But the statistics still tell us that it happens often, and many people commit adultery without thinking twice about it. Now, most of the time when things get to that point, a lot has already happened. Spouses have quit making each other a priority. They've taken each other for granted. Contempt has built over time. Children have dominated the marriage, all of which points to the fact that we must nurture our marriages over time. We must honor our vows over time. And this is hard work, but it's worth it. And then there are times when marriages don't make it, when they do fall apart, when there's something that they just can't get past. And so that's when I say the church must be there to pick people up. And we have divorce care offered again this fall for those that are going through that because they feel alone and they feel like they've hit rock bottom. The fourth area, and I know I'm laying it on you thick this morning, the fourth area where we often sell our soul is for social approval. Many people will do and say anything to be accepted by a particular group or social circle. They will tell people exactly what they want to hear. I was having lunch this week with a longtime friend of mine. We've been friends for 14 years. He was in my wedding. We were down by Vanderbilt and he was saying, you know, it seems like everything in our culture is getting more and more extreme. Where are the people in the middle? Where are the moderates? Why does it feel like everybody's position is so extreme? And so what we find in our culture is that people are willing to say anything to be liked and accepted. Many people are not willing to think for themselves. But the reality is people respect you when you think for yourself, when you bring your own perspective, when you speak the truth in love. But so many people live their lives worried about what other people will think and will they be accepted and so they don't feel like they can do this. And so they tell people what they want to hear, when they want to hear it. And I think many people sell their souls when they are not honest about how they really feel and what they really believe. Lastly this morning, the last way that we can sell our soul in life is busyness. Not business, but busyness. We have become so busy and overscheduled as a culture that we cannot do anything well. And I mentioned this last week because I thought about it a lot when I was on my sabbatical this summer. To grow spiritually, we have to carve out time to slow down and reflect. Every day does not have to be full of activities. Families today are so worried about missing out that they commit to everything under the sun and it becomes too much. They're exhausted. They're worn out. The scripture says, be still and know that I am God. But so many of us are too busy to be still. We need to slow down. These are just some of the ways that 
we can sell our soul in life, and there are many others that you could name, and sometimes we don't realize it until it's too late. Many of you have heard me tell the story over the years about the uh, New York businessman and the, uh, the Mexican fishing village, and I'm not going to tell that story again, even though I do think that story drives home the point of the question Jesus is asking. But I do want to close by telling you this. A few years ago on a Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call from uh, somebody in our church. This person uh, interrupted my Sunday afternoon nap, uh, but I answered, the, I answered the, uh, the phone. They'd been in church that morning. They'd heard the message. I can't exactly remember what I was preaching on that week, but I do know that I mentioned how loneliness and social isolation have become huge problems in our culture. And so this particular person was older, very successful in business, had made lots of money, owned many things, had lived all over the place. But he called me on this one Sunday afternoon out of the blue and he said, Clay, you know, I've accomplished a lot in my life. I've lived in different places. I've owned many businesses. I've done many things. But now that I'm reaching the final stage of my life, I realize that I'm lonely. I feel like I'm all by myself. And sometimes I wonder if the people in my life really love me or do they just love the life that I give them? Amen.